Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. I don't know a lot about the South, even though I've geographically lived in the South for so much of my life. As I tell people, Miami is geographically the South. It is not Southern. (laughs) It's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. (laughs) I'm Julia Longoria, and today we're hearing from correspondent Tracy Hunt, who, like me, grew up in Miami, Florida. My high school was 99% Black, but we had a white AP history teacher. I can't remember her name. I just remember that she always had, like, a really nice manicure. Like, she had, like, those long nails. And, like, <laughs> and she had the most beautiful cursive writing. Anyway. But I remember when we got to, like, the Civil War unit in our American history class, she was like, okay, first of all, there are people who are going to tell you that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. That is a lie. It absolutely had something to do with slavery. They're going to talk, they're going to blame it on states' rights. They're going to blame it on heritage. No, that is not true. It absolutely had something to do with slavery. And I remember just sitting there being like, duh, like, what? <laughs> like why is she telling us this? <laughs> of like, course, what are you like, talking about? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And it was decades, like, not decades, but it was a while later until I finally heard about this thing called the Lost Cause Myth. The Lost Cause Myth is this idea that the Civil War, at least from the point of view of the South, had nothing to do with slavery. That it was about states' rights, that Southerners were just trying to protect their way of life, that they fought honorably and righteously, They were trying to protect their families from this war of Northern aggression. And that Robert E. Lee, who was the head general for the Confederate armies, was the most perfect gentleman. He didn't even want to fight the Civil War. And it tore him up inside to be doing this. And oh, by the way, slavery wasn't even that bad. And enslaved people in the South were treated well by their masters and they were loyal to their masters and that they even fought alongside the Confederates. It's a way of buffing and smoothing out all these ugly realities of what slavery actually is into this glossy, gone-with-the-wind myth. It's like, that's easier to believe. Right, yeah. (laughs) That's easier to believe than to think like such horrible horrible inhumanity happened. Right. And, you know, I've been thinking about the lost cause lately because on January 6th, we saw Confederate flags in the Capitol, and that was truly shocking. And then a couple weeks later, I was scrolling on Twitter, and I was really struck by this video. This morning, as we continue our focus on the most interesting new books... 
CBS was interviewing this guy named Ty Sigley. He had been in the military for about 30 years. He taught history at West Point, and he had just retired. He says so he could finally speak his mind in full. And he's talking about how he grew up in the South and had grown up believing in the lost cause and how Robert E. Lee was his hero. Until one day he had this revelation that Robert E. Lee was a Confederate traitor. He was a cruel enslaver, someone who believed deeply, firmly, and really his entire life, that human enslavement was the best social system for the South. The result of that work, his new book, Robert E. Lee and Me. And how old was he when he had this revelation? Did you get a sense? He was like 40 years old and had a PhD in history. So why did you want to talk to him? So many people are like talking about disinformation, you know, right now and whether it's QAnon, whether it's believing like the president really won the election, you know, all these like weird conspiracy theories. And we sort of talk about it in this way, like it's it's a new thing. But, you know, the lost cause myth is nothing if not like a huge disinformation campaign. And so we've, we've, we've been here before. <laughs> and we also know that it's really hard to have a functioning democracy when like significant portions of the country like can't even agree on like basic facts and like one of the most basic facts is like why did we fight the civil war and so like if that's the case then like we have to get a lot of people white people to like wake up and just admit the civil war was fought because of slavery How do we get white people to just, like, get on the same page? And here was a white person who, like, went through the process. Who has done it, yeah. This week, Tracy Hunt has a conversation with a man who believed a lie about America for most of his life. She tries to figure out what it took for him to give it up and what it would take for others like him to do the same. This is The Experiment. Hi, uh, Mr. Sigily? Hello? Oh, hi. Hello. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. Ty Sigily grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, where Confederate symbolism was everywhere. It was a big part of his childhood. In his home, there were these, like, four flags of the Confederacy hanging above the mantle. And Robert E. Lee specifically was everywhere. Streets named after him and statues of him. I can't remember life without Robert E. Lee. What I grew up with was this omnipresent idea of gentlemen. And when I thought of him growing up, it was gentlemen that really made me think of Robert E. Lee. And that, that encompassed his not only the way he looked, but the way he acted. So every aspect of my life made him the hero. And so I I would say that, you know, on a scale of one to 10, Lee was an 11. And even though I was a good Episcopalian, went to church every Sunday, I would have put Jesus at the four, five, six range. Which would be shocking to Jesus, I think. Um, (laughs) I guess that is like, that's wild to me, you know? And so like, you talk about Robert E. Lee being a gentleman, like, what does that mean? So what gentlemen meant to me was status. So in, in the world I grew up with, you would talk about white men 
of a certain socioeconomic class that had education, that treated everyone well, that would be status. So I thought of it as being good manners, uh, holding the door open uh, for women when they went through. It was holding the chair out. It was learning the social etiquette of the time. So it was very linked to what I wanted, which was status and power. So when you got into like middle and high school, you know, I'm assuming that y'all started talking about the Civil War at that point. What were you told about why the Civil War happened? Nothing uh, that I remember. I don't ever remember looking at that. And I really didn't think about what it was fought for because what I concentrated on was like Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg leading the, the fight on day three, how bravely they went into sure disaster, how bravely they fought all these things. And this is part of that lost cause mythology. So even if I learned later in life that the Civil War is about slavery, it still allowed me to do Confederate idolatry, to worship Lee as a man who did what he had to do, did it well, and then helped the country come back together. That's what I learned. Ty was fed a story. And this story was so powerful that it allowed him to ignore how it might have been for other people growing up in the South. I remember in the sixth grade, I was actually bused across town from the white elementary school, and I was going to go to the segregated all-black school. And what was the name of that segregated black school? It was Robert E. Lee Elementary School. And, and I was so excited. And, and my other, the other kids uh, were going, we were going to, to school. And I went to this school named after my hero and named Robert E. Lee Elementary School. It was an all-black segregated school named in 1961 as a reaction to integration. And when I was there, we had the school was actually shut down several times for bomb threats. Other schools had crosses burned on the front lawn. And, and it started a white flight in Alexandria where kids moved away from this integrated uh, learning. But Ty didn't see the connection between the lost cause and the racist violence and segregation that was happening around him. Even going to a segregated school and later being moved to an all-white private school didn't make him question this myth. And when it was time to pick a college, he decided to follow his hero. My first choice was where I went to college. And uh, where I went to college was to be a Virginia gentleman. And what is the best way to do that? Go somewhere named after, after the two great heroes, the two great gentlemen of Virginia, Washington and Lee. And for me, it was walking into Lee Chapel uh, the first day I was there. So when I went in there, you know, you would think, oh, there's a pulpit. There's a, a little place where the hymnals are listed. There's, you know, all these different things that go along with the church. But on the altar, this white slab of marble lay a statue of Robert E. Lee in repose. So it, in other words, his white marble lying on the battlefield with a blanket covering, not his boots, with his hand on the sword, ready to rise up to fight for the white people of the South. And it was surrounded by Confederate flags. So that was my education. We went and we worshiped literally at the feet of St. Bob. And he was buried right below there. He's buried below the chapel? Yes, he's buried below the chapel. And right next to him is his horse, Traveler. And they still leave carrots and apples there on Traveler's grave. And they also put pennies on that for him, always face down. And for two reasons, Tracy, they put it down for two reasons. The first is so that Lincoln's head won't be visible to the great Robert E. Lee, and so that Lincoln will have to kiss Traveler's ass. That is... Awful. Wouldn't you say? I was going to say bizarre. Because I, I, I think that's what I keep coming back to, is that it's just so... Um, you know, the, I think the cultishness of it and the religiosity around it is what's really kind of alarming to me. You know, I love that part in the book where you talk about your wife 
who's Catholic or grew up Catholic. I don't know if she's Catholic anymore, but she comes into Lee Chapel and she's immediately like, get me out of here. This is crazy. Because she automatically just saw that what was happening was that Lee was being worshipped as a god. And I'm wondering when, when she said that, did you realize that? So my wife didn't grow up learning to lie like I did. You know, my entire being almost grew up with these lies of the lost cause and, and, and white supremacy. I wish I could tell you, I really wish that I could tell you that when she said that, I saw it. But I didn't. I still didn't see it. I still saw, you know, this was my school and she was trash talking my school and my way of life. And she totally was <laughs> because yeah. it, she totally was. For good reason, yeah. It. For damn good reason. After college, Ty went into the Army. He got a PhD in history. He served abroad. He had all these different experiences outside of the South. But it would be another 20 years before he would finally see that much of what he grew up with, his culture, his heritage, the people in history he was told to be proud of, that it was all based on a big lie. By the early 2000s, Ty had spent 20 years in the U.S. Army and was teaching history at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. It's the top school for training military officers. And one day, he said he was just walking around campus when things suddenly, somehow, stopped making sense. You know, now I am fully, I'm a soldier, and I fight for my country. I, I have fought for my country in war and in peace, and I'm living on Lee Road. And I go walking one day, and I walk by... Eisenhower Barracks, Pershing Barracks, Grant Barracks. Naming Barracks is our highest honor at West Point. The barracks at West Point, like a lot of dorms at universities, are named after old dead men. Military heroes like General Pershing from World War I, General Eisenhower from World War II, and General Grant on the Union side of the Civil War. And then I get to Lee Barracks, and I look at this sign, and it says Lee Barracks, and I just stop there, just staring at this. Then I look east about 20 yards, and they put up a new memorial to Lee in 2001, I was living in Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing Area. Why are there so many things named after Lee here? I mean, I understood Washington and Lee, but I didn't get the United States Military Academy has all these things named after Lee. What the hell? And why is that weird? Why, why would that be weird? Well, because that's when I finally figured out. I mean, wait a minute. This guy didn't fight for the home team. He fought against the home team. He didn't fight for the United States of America. He fought for the Confederate States of America. So this was, the epiphany was, wait a minute, he didn't fight for, for us. He fought for the bad guys. And now I see this, and I go running all over campus, and I find more than a dozen things named after Lee. Up until that point, the name Lee had always felt like a home to him. But seeing it there, besides the name of other victorious generals in American history, seeing the name of someone who lost... That image he held of Lee as an American hero just suddenly looked out of place. And it made him wonder how it got there in the first place. And that sent me to the archives. So before the Civil War, Lee had actually been the superintendent at West Point. But when he resigned from the U.S. Army and joined the Confederacy, he became a traitor. And what I found in the archives was that West Point banished the Confederates uh, up until the 20th century. After the war, Lee thought he'd be hanged for treason. But that didn't happen. There were calls to unify the country, and he got a pass. And that's when his rehabilitation started. 
he went on to become a university president. And in 1931, his name starts popping back up at West Point. They started giving out a math award named after him. And Ty wondered, why had West Point changed their minds about Lee? In the 1930s, that's when the first African-American cadet graduates from West Point in the 20th century. Benjamin O. Davis Jr., later leader of the Red Tails in uh, World War II, Tuskegee Airmen, later the first four-star general in the Air Force. I mean, he was, this is a great hero. But when they bring black cadets, that's when they name things after Lee. And in 1952 is when the Army is fighting against integration. That's when they bring a Confederate portrait of Lee. And in 1970, when they name the barracks, that's a year after they start the minority admissions program, and we go from a handful of black cadets to dozens of black cadets. So at every turn, I find that when did they name things after Confederates is as a reaction to integration. And that just tore me up, tore me up. I start seeing this link between Confederate memorialization and what the Confederates did themselves. There's no difference. It's all about racism and white supremacy. Did you feel like you had been duped? Part of it was duped, and part of it was my own um, asinine uh, ignorance and stubbornness not to see the facts right in front of my face. I want to know, why did it take you so long? Because I look at you and I'm like, you went to the best universities, you had the best education, you're like, you know, you just... You're, you're a history professor, for crying out yeah. loud. <laughs> like, what, was, what wasn't... Yeah, I'm just going to say, why? The answer to why. After the break. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. know why did it take you so long what why was i such a dumbass i mean it really is really the, sure. the, the crucial <laughs> and, and yeah i know let's just put it on there so this is what i wanted to know why did it take so long for a history professor with a phd to see that the lost cause was a myth a lie why did someone with all the training all the facts just not see the truth you know the thing is that history is dangerous because it creates your sense of identity. I mean, I taught, when I was at West Point, I taught that the Civil War was about slavery. It wasn't as though I didn't teach the facts, but somehow I could still revere this person that meant so much in my life. And that, that was my sin, not looking at that carefully enough. The other part is, is that I had been wearing U.S. Army over my heart for over 20 years. I took the oath. I can solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. 
and the oath that I took that we everybody, in fact, everybody in Congress takes. That you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Of the United States that oath was written in 1862 and is an anti-Confederate oath. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. When it says defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic, when it says no purpose of evasion, those are talking about Confederates. And you bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That you take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And so my identity had changed over that time. My identity was no longer Southerner. It was no longer Virginian. It was no longer even gentleman. It was U.S. Army officer, which was very important to me. And when I saw that Lee in my home of West Point and the United States, that said, wait a minute, that, that's what the epiphany was. Because I identified now as an American, not as a Southerner. You will and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you're about to enter. So help you God. Acknowledge the oath. So you had to like go through a, a fundamental change in your identity. I did. That's huge. It is. That's a big mo that's a big thing. That's not easy. No. So like part of the reason why I'm interested in this, um, I don't know if you Googled me, I'm black. <laughs> um, and I think about the fact that like so much about what we have to do as a country is we have to move forward on race. Like I feel like what we have to wait for is like people like you, white people, have to like have these aha moments. They have to realize, you know, and that's scary to me because like with you, it took until you were 40. And so I'm just like, I'm just really nervous about having to wait for these moments. And, and, I, and I'm wondering what your reaction to that is. Like, how can we have a real reckoning if what we have to rely on is like, individual white people to like realize the truth in this country. You're exactly right. And in fact, it's, it's, I think it's worse than you say, because after every moment of movement toward equality is followed by a white backlash that is more violent and more uh, devastating than the last. It, I mean, racism is so endemic to our country. I'm talking about a Southern story. But racism goes from sea to shining sea. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a, just a Southern only problem. I don't know what the answer is to that. All I know is more white people have to accept the facts of American history. I, I wish I had a better answer of how we're going to do that. I don't know. I, I know, though, that it does require white people admitting where they come from and who they are and then fighting like hell to end that. It's, yeah, it is amazing to me because, like, you know, and I'm, you said this in your book, like, the, the South lost the war, but they won the narrative. And it's actually kind of a counter to that old saying is, like, you know, the winners write the history books. But in this case, like, the, the, the losers actually wrote the history books. One thing I was kind of surprised to learn about Robert E. Lee was that he was never punished. And that he, you know, after he declared war in the United States, he was able to have like a pretty good life, got a really prestigious job, was well paid, you know, had a whole university named after him after the Civil War. You know, Jefferson Davis apparently was in jail for two years and that was it. 
And, you know, all of that happened in this desire to, like, kind of unify the country and move forward after such a bloody conflict. Um, do you think things would have been different if Robert E. Lee had been hanged for treason? Well, I do know that there can't be reconciliation without truth and justice first. And we did not get that. I mean, remember, there's only one crime in the Constitution. It says levying war against the United States. And no one did that like Robert E. Lee. So I certainly wish that they, more people had been held accountable for that because they certainly did not accept the results of this war. Would that have meant other white people would have accepted the results of the war? Doubtful. Doubtful. Uh, I don't think that the white South was ready. I mean, they, they showed they were going to execute political violence um, to ensure racial control no matter what. But because we know that they weren't, it means that we must hold people accountable today. And we must have justice uh, and truth before we can get to reconciliation. So, Tracy, I wonder, what did you make of this conversation in the end? Like, did you get the answer you were looking for? Yeah, he was making the point that, like, your culture is more powerful than what's written in history books. And that's what he was holding on to is his culture at the end of the day. And in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of that experience I had with my teacher. Because I, being a Black woman... Black teenager at that time, my culture was like very much like, yeah, the Civil War was fought after about slavery. <laughs> and like, I didn't need to read like the succession papers to know that. He did. He had to read them, but I didn't. <laughs> and that does make sense because like, especially the way a lot of history is taught, and he talked a little bit about this where so much of his history learning in school was just like fact, 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 fact. Like dates and places and people and facts, facts, facts. They weren't stories. And the lost cause is a story. In that way, it's way more powerful than the facts that he was being given. I mean, do, do you think about this moment we're living now? Like, we saw this act of violence mm -hmm. on January 6th. We saw... People, like, attacking our government, like, our country in a very, like, blatant, visceral way that we watched on TV and people died. And there was a lot of Confederate symbolism in, in the attack, like, mm -hmm. displayed. And almost immediately, we saw myth-making about it. The most extreme version of it is sort of the QAnon conspiracy version of the story, which said that these people were actually heroes who were trying to save our country from evil and that Donald Trump was actually directing these people in a battle to save the soul of the nation. I mean, in light of everything you talked about with Ty Sejuli, like, w what do we do now to make sure that that story doesn't win in the history books? His point was that you, we can't have unity without some sort of accountability. And that, you know, there has to be like some sort of like 9-11 commission type thing for January 6th, which I agree with. And then I guess, you know, we have to 
make a story about it. And I mean, you do see a little bit of that story thing happening. Like with the officer, I think his name is Eugene Goodman, a Black officer. It was like one of the most shared videos was of him um, outside the Senate chambers. He runs up the stairs. He knows that there's like a mob chasing him. And when he gets to the tops of the stairs, you see him looking to the left. And to the left is where the Senate chambers are. And so when the mob comes up, he runs right. And then the mob chases after him. And so basically he like led the mob away from the Senate chambers. Um, You know, and it was scary and powerful because you also realize that he's like literally using himself as bait because he knows that these people will definitely chase a black police officer to do harm to him. So you see like a little bit of, I wouldn't say myth-making, but a little bit of like story about him happening where like this black man is like the, the hero of that day instead of Trump being the hero of the day. Is it enough? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> but I feel like there has to be facts and there has to be like a better story. This episode was produced by Tracy Hunt and me, Matt Collette. Editing by Julia Longoria, Alvin Malleth, and Catherine Wells. Fact check by William Brennan. Sound design by David Herman. Music by Tasty Morsels. Our team also includes Gabrielle Berbet, Emily Botine, and Natalia Ramirez. Special thanks to Adam Serwer, Van Newkirk, Viralyn Williams, and Janisha Watts. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.